All right, so like I said, we're week three. The culture's content. I could say Satan's content, but really we're talking about the culture's assault on Christianity and Satan's influence through the culture. So this series considers culture's assault on Christianity, and then we're going to look next week at the church's proper response to this assault in an, in an attempt to equip you to fight and win this constant war of diligence between the people that belong to two different universal kingdoms. One is Satan's kingdom, one is God's kingdom. It really is a tale of two kingdoms. Now remember, one thing I want to point this out, I'm probably going to say this every week, we don't fight the culture. We fight the enemy's influence that we find in the culture. Those are two different things. We're not mad at people who don't have the truth. We love those people by sharing the truth with them. Our enemy is not the people in our culture. It's the kingdom of darkness and its influence over those people. So please don't confuse the two. So we looked at where we've come from and how we got here. Last time we looked at the culture's tactics, so tonight we'll see the culture's content. Again, our primary book for this series is the Bible. It has the answers, okay? We don't have to go outside the Bible to find answers for the human sin that does damage to the culture. But there are a few books that will help us navigate this topic. I'll mention them again tonight. I've mentioned them the first couple of weeks. We Will Not Be Silenced, Erwin Lutzer. Um, I'll read a couple quotes from that tonight. Fault Lines, Vody Bauckham. I'll probably have some references to that next week. And then Letter to the American Church, Eric Metaxas. Uh, good Greek name there, Metaxas. Uh, so that'll be, I'll read a quote from that tonight as well. In this battle, you're not just wanting to win an argument. Ultimately, what you're wanting to do is win a soul. Okay, so I want you to bear that in mind. I'll probably repeat that every time we go through this. So you do need to go to the Bible and the local church, not just a social movement outside of the Bible. We talked about that already, okay? The Bible speaks to the person, it speaks to the soul, and the local church is God's chosen instrument on earth to be salt and light in any culture. So that's where we're going to go. So if our current culture in this nation has become darker compared to how it once viewed Judeo-Christian ethics and how it once viewed the scriptures, then how did our culture get that way? What content has our enemy used to influence this culture? Last time we asked that question about what tactics, but now let's look a little bit more specifically instead of tactics at some specific content, some examples, some illustrations. We've already done this. Like I said, there's some overlap between tonight and last week. So the enemy's content in our culture, if you go to that section in your notes, um, if you're taking notes or if you care to, there's three spheres under the enemy's content in our culture. There's three spheres that God established, three areas, three spheres. Number one is the family unit. Number two is the government. And you see all this in Genesis, by the way, first nine or ten chapters. The family unit, second's the government, and third is the church. The family unit is the first sphere that you see. The government is the second unit that you see. And the church is the third unit that you see or sphere. So the enemy's content in our culture is being implemented in the area of that first sphere, the family unit. Okay, Even if you're not married or have never been married, you still represent a household and you still have a family, your local church. So this does apply, and, and even if you're single, you, you obviously have a chance to mentor people who may be married or will get married, and so this obviously applies too. So under the family unit, in the enemy's content in our culture section, under the family unit, I'm just going to mention a couple of things. I'm going to stay a little more basic today. 
We'll talk about the government. I'll just mention a couple of things. And then we'll talk about the sphere of the church. And I'll just mention a couple of things with that. Uh, So first off, for the family unit, uh, the content in an attempt to, first off, divorce the parents. A lot of times the enemy will go after the parents. So if I can divorce the parents, you look at Matthew 19, here's what God's word says about marriage. And Satan, obviously, he's going to want to do the opposite. Okay, so Matthew 19, 3 through 6. Matthew 19, 3 through 6, if you want to look at that with me. Matthew chapter 19, 3 through 6. The Pharisees come to Jesus. They want Jesus to settle this legal argument they've been having. And this was a Jewish argument. There are two Jewish schools of thought on divorce. Um, Can you send your wife away with a divorce certificate because she burned the toast? And it's kind of stupid and silly, but actually one group did believe that. I mean, they're just for any reason. Or does it have to be something serious, something egregious? So they were arguing about that. So the Pharisees brought their argument to Jesus. They said, testing him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? That's the background of the argument behind why they're asking him that question. And he answered and said to them, in other words, they're saying, solve this debate for us. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So that's what Jesus says about marriage. But Satan's obviously going to come and his, his content or influence in the culture is going to try to, first of all, under the family unit, divorce the parents. And the content can be different things. But a lot of times, now look, the fringe reasons for divorce, we're not going to talk about those tonight. There are sometimes crazy things. We, uh, a pastor friend of mine counseled a lady who came to him and said, uh, can I divorce my husband? I, I, let me tell you the situation. Every night, he puts, she wasn't making this up, she, he has a revolver. He puts a live round in the revolver, just one, spins it, racks the, uh, the revolver, pulls the hammer back, cocks it back, puts the gun up to my head, holds it there, no reason, just does it, and then decocks it, puts it back in the nightstand, the drawer, and goes to sleep. He said, she said he, he does that every night. So, we're not talking about those. There, there are issues. There are reasons. Abandonment, severe abuse, when someone's life is being put in danger. Okay, so we're not talking about those. There are exceptions to what I'm talking about. But usually, or often, the content that Satan's putting in the culture behind divorce is selfishness. The content is selfishness. It's I love me more than I love you. I'm more aimed, my love is more aimed at myself than it's aimed at you. By the way, we're not going to go there, but if you want to see a perfect illustration of selfishness play out, where the king, the queen, and the advisors that the king goes to for counsel about what he should do with this situation are all focused, their love, all three of them are focused on themselves. Go read Esther 1. Esther chapter 1. Now, God uses this terrible thing to bring good, yes, but you see a home break open, and in in, in absolutely selfishness is behind that. So if Satan can get them focused on themselves instead of each other, this will bring them to think about themselves as an individual instead of a two-person unit or team. A perfect illustration of this is when one person in the marriage tries to solve the problem by themselves instead of together. Uh, You know, none of you know who I'm talking about, so this can be completely anonymous. They don't even live here. Um, But in the past, I've worked with a couple who... um, no kids in here. Okay, I had to make sure. This is a 
a great example where um, if there's a problem that enters the, again, except for extreme situations, that's a little different. If there's a problem that enters the marriage, it's the wrong thing to, to, to do to think about, well, that's your problem, you fix it. No, you're a team. You both work on it. So in this particular case, the guy was struggling with porn. Uh, she found out, she got mad, has every right to get mad, that, uh, that is an act of betrayal, agreed. Kicks him out of his own house. It's his house too, it's not just her house. Stiff arms him and says, that's your problem, you fix it. And I mean, no sex for probably over a year. That's the very opposite of what you want to do. That's going to make the problem even worse. Instead of being more sexually available, if, now, the caveat is if he's repentant. If he's not repentant, this is a different story. But if he's repentant, and he is, he was, he's, he said, look, I'm willing to get rid of my phone. I'm willing to do anything. I just, I'm sorry. I just want to make this work. I'm not going back to that. So he was repentant. If he's repentant, she needs to be more sexually available, not less. And I know that can be painful, ladies, but that helps the reward circuitry and wiring in his brain the sexual nature God gave us, that helps him visually and emotionally and spiritually reconnect back to her like he's supposed to and not this variety that's out there, right, that he had been looking at. And so what she got caught in a, and she's a believer. She got caught in a trap of thinking this is his problem to fix by himself. No, it is not. That attitude is not biblical at all. You're a team. When you took your oath, your covenant oath, you, you agreed, okay, we're a team. We're in this together. If you have a problem, did his sin just affect him? No, it affected her too. Why? Because they're one unit. Is, she gonna solve, if he, is he going to solve the problem on his own? No. Why not? Because they're a unit. They're a team. You've got to solve problems as a team. You have to navigate life as a team. You need to pray through and make decisions as a team. This is a deal. But Satan gets us this content of selfish, selfishness into the family unit uh, in an attempt to divorce uh, their the parents. If the enemy can split the parents with selfishness, he can start the members in that family down a path toward destruction, or at least aim them in that direction. Now, the members of the family, all, every one of them, now the members in that family can recover from the path toward, that leads toward destruction, even after a divorce has already occurred, but the momentum following divorce is typically toward even more pain, even more dysfunction. And the only and only the application of the power of the gospel can stop the members in the family from continuing down that path toward destruction. I've been on the receiving end of it. My parents divorced when I was five. I know very well that is absolutely 100% the case. The gospel is the only thing that has the power to stop those people down that path toward pain and destruction and turn them around and go, hey, hey wait, that was bad what happened, but let's bring some healing out of this. Right? My dad married my stepmom a few years later. Um, several years ago, he led her to Christ. So there's been good that's come out of this. This is not all bad, um, even though what happened was bad. So selfishness is part of the enemy's content or one of the landmines, if you want to think of it that way, that he places in our culture. The second thing with the family unit, so the first one is divorce the parents. The second one is sexualize the children. A lot of what Satan is doing right now as I speak in our culture regarding the family unit, that first sphere, is to sexualize the children. Is God uh, at an early age and exploit them? Is God okay with that? Yes or no? No. And most of you instinctively know that question. Maybe some of you, a, a passage is even popping into mind. Look, if you're in Matthew 19, just go one chapter to the left. Matthew 18. 
Listen to verse 1 through 6, Matthew 18, 1 through 6. Here's what God says, because remember, Satan, we already talked about this in the series. Satan's going to give his own counterfeit answer that's different than God's answer. And his, Satan's answer will always be in direct competition with God's answer. So here's what God says, Matthew 18, 1 through 6. He says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So in the context of this um, talk about greatness, Jesus called a little child to him. He uses the child as an example. And set him in the middle of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself, he's talking about humility, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, he said, you want to be great? Humble yourself and let me lift you up. You don't lift yourself up, right? Whoever receives one little child like this, he's pointing to the child that he brought, in my name receives me. But listen to verse 6. In this context about greatness in the kingdom, which is the opposite of our idea in in this world of greatness, look at what he says. Here's the truth from verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, again, he's still got the kid in front of him, to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. God is not okay corrupting an innocent child. God's against that. He's not for that. He doesn't like that. And it's completely against his heartbeat. So the content that Satan will feed into the culture to sexualize the children in an attempt to get at that first fear, the family unit, is sexually explicit exposure. However, he can get that to happen. Back in the day, you had to go to a magazine store or a gas station and work up the courage, you know, to go ask the, you know, where kids would pull a hey, mister, you know, and ask an 18-year-old to go buy it for them. And you had to have the actual magazine to look at stuff. Today, that's totally different, right? Much easier to access. So sexually explicit exposure is one of the, the part of the content that the enemy uses. We are only one generation away from recovering as a culture, remaining the same as a culture, or disintegrating into complete destruction as a culture. We're only one generation away. Why? Because our children now are the adults next. There's really not that much. If you think about it, you think, man, you know, when you were 10, how long did 20 years seem to you? But now, how long does 20 years seem to you? Not quite as long, still a long time, but not quite as long. So it doesn't take long for that next generation to be there. One illustration is our kids' school, they go to the oldest charter school in Midland, right by the police station, is where both of our girls go. And they had a video on inappropriate touch. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to get the parents' permission before they showed that video. They wanted to say, look, it's a cartoon. Here's the login. Here's how you watch it. We want you to watch it before we show it to you. We want you to be aware of what we're showing your kids. And I, we watched, I, first of all, I appreciated that. Second of all, it, the video was very tastefully done. The main point of, it was about 10 minutes or something, and the main point of the video was anything that your swimming suit covers is off limits. You know, unless you're with your parents at the doctor and he's got to check something. Anything your bathing suit covers, if you think about that, that, that works great for guys and girls, is off limits for other people to touch or to see or anything like that. And I thought, okay, my daughter's in second grade. She's watching a cartoon. They're teaching about this, and they make that. I, I was okay. Now, we could have opted out, and she wouldn't have watched the deal, but I was perfectly okay with that. I thought I, this cartoon actually portrays it really well. So there's a, an example of some, you know, it tastefully done, right? It doesn't always have to be um, horribly done. 
The school library uh, is an example of sometimes how Satan will influence and, and get sexually explicit material uh, in front of kids. So be aware of what's in school libraries. Sometimes people feel intimidated because they don't have kids at that school currently that they can't go to a school board meeting. That's nonsense. If you pay property taxes, you can be involved uh, and serve and be a voice in the school board meeting. So um, that's an option for us, and we'll talk about that stuff next week. Um, or the county public library can include explicit material, sometimes even in the kids' section. There was a lady uh, one or two weeks ago that came by here, a lady that is connected to First Baptist Church Midland, who was having us asking if we were interested in signing a petition to uh, move a few examples in our Midland County library, public library of, uh, with some sexually explicit material. Her problem wasn't so much that it was there, although that's an issue, but that it was in the kids' section. Uh, it was three or four books. I can't remember the names of them, and she showed us examples to move them from the kids' section to the adults' section. So at least the kids wouldn't be sitting there going, oh, what's this? Oh, he's touching. Oh, it, you know, it's, I won't even repeat the stuff that was in there. It would be inappropriate, um, even in here, and there's no kids in here. Um, gender, another illustration, gender confusion and the pronoun use that follows is part of the content that our enemy uses to sexualize children. That's a huge one. Um, within that idea, there's also another illustration would be Puberty blockers. Puberty blockers were obviously created more to, if there's early onset puberty and there's a medically valid, which if it's real early onset, there is a medically valid reason that you would want to delay it, then they would take those blockers until an appropriate age. I don't know what it was. It's up to the doctor at 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, you know, probably somewhere in there. Uh, but, but now these are being used off-label per, on a more permanent basis. To delay, gen, to delay this puberty um, apparently indefinitely, right? So we're going off-label with this stuff. Cross-sex hormones um, and mutilating surgery, this is one of the more recent ones, uh, is a more recent part of the enemy's delusional content where he's trying to infiltrate and damage the family unit, again, by sexualizing the children. And the earlier the better. I mean, the earlier the better. Another example is that some schools are introducing a comprehensive sexuality education curriculum. So for short, it's CSE. If you want to look into that, CSE curriculum. It's created partly by Planned Parenthood, and, it's, and we've talked about them in, in the previous weeks, and influenced by the philosophy of Alfred Kinsey. Alfred Kinsey did a lot of his work in the 40s, 50s. A man who taught that we are sexual from birth and normalizing immoral behavior he actually employed pedophiles to obtain the data he used to give an appearance to the legitimacy of his findings, where they would take months old and a couple years, months old all the way up to a couple years old children and fondle them to see if they, no kids in the room, to see if they would orgasm, and then they're recording this stuff if they thought they did. I don't know how you'd know if a four-month-old did. And they would chart this stuff out on these charts. And this is some of the stuff that they did behind Alfred Kinsey, uh, two landmark books that he came out with, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, Sexual Behavior in the Human Female, in the, I believe it was the late 40s. And he totally, uh, people started to buy his, into his theories. One guy that bought into his theory, Hugh Hefner. Hugh Hefner adored him, looked up to him, and said, I'm going to be his pamphleteer. Well, you see the result of that, right? If you don't know who Hugh Hefner is, I wouldn't say don't Google it. If you Google Hugh Hefner, just make sure it's on the safe search, whatever setting. So, um, 
there you go. So some schools are, are introducing this CSE curriculum. Um, there is a book, if you want to look more into this, there's a fantastic book that gives you the actual, it tells you the data, but then it gives you the actual research and references. It's called Stolen Honor, Stolen Innocence by Dr. Judith Reisman, PhD. She's excellent. Highly recommend her stuff. Dr. Judith Reisman, Stolen Honor, Stolen Innocence, talks all about Kinsey, um, just the filth that, that ended up becoming infiltrated into, not all of, I'm not saying if they teach sex education, it's all Kinsey. I'm not saying that. But much of the material ended up infiltrating itself into the structure of certain sex educations that we use. Uh, so that's a big one. So we see that sexually explicit exposure is part of the content that the enemy strategically places in our culture. He's strategic about it. He, um, he doesn't do it by accident. He does this intentionally, on purpose. The younger, the better. If he can get the kid at a younger age, um, he's all for that, obviously. Um, the next content that Satan, we're talking about the uh, culture's content, or the enemy's content in our culture. The next content issue is pride. Pride. So we talk about sexually explicit material or exposure, and now let's uh, look at pride. Pride's one of the first sins ever committed. And so if you read and you study the scriptures for any long period of time at all, you understand this pride issue. This is not, not a good thing. The LGBTQ movement chronically uses a very telling term, gay pride or queer pride. The Bible says that pride is a sin and is something we should avoid, not parade in a display of arrogance. So they're basically shaking their fist in God's face with it. It's an act of pride. And then, as if that's not enough, the movement steals one of God's best icons of his mercy, not to judge the whole world by the flood again, the rainbow, rewrites its meaning, redefines the word, the, the icon, the meaning behind the icon, and says, this is our icon now, right? This is ours. This is no longer yours. I still love to use rainbows. I think one of our kids' shirt, but not that kind. I think one of our kids' shirt maybe has a rainbow or something on it. But when, when we see it, we think, isn't this terrible that you even have to think this? Is somebody, can we redeem this symbol, which I think we can, but can we redeem this symbol, or is someone who sees my kid wearing this shirt think that they're wearing this shirt for, for a very different reason, right? Um, I think we can redeem it. I think we can say, hey, oh, you got your, I've got my rainbow shirt on. Let me just tell you, this is God's symbol of mercy. I don't know if you knew that about the rainbow, and use it as an opportunity to tell them, hey, he promised he's never going to flood uh, the world again. He's never going to destroy the world by flood again. So pride is a huge one. Um, the rainbow, they rewrite its meaning. Okay, so God's symbol of his mercy, this is interesting. God's symbol of his mercy is the very thing they're shoving in his face while testing the limits of that mercy. And I find that very ironic. How haughty, how arrogant is that? But should we be surprised when it's all being done under the banner of pride? No. That's what pride does. Pride caused Satan to try to throw God off his own throne in heaven. Do we think that pride here on earth is not going to shake things up a bit? So pride is also a part of the content that the enemy strategically places in our culture. And with this one, it's part of who he has become. It's who he is. It's what got him thrown out of heaven in the first place. Um, so that's number one, the first fear, the family. Okay? The enemy's content in our culture is also being, being implemented in the area of the second sphere, which is the government. And again, you read the first nine chapters of Genesis, 
And you very clearly see all three of these spheres developed that God establishes. Family unit, the government, and the local church or the church. So the second one, the government. Uh, The first thing that he tries to content-wise get into here, we're just going to look at a couple things here uh, with regard to the government. Actually, we're only going to look at one main thing. By the way, there's a dozen things. We could spend four weeks just on number two or number one or number three, but we're just going to look at one thing. And Erwin Lutzer's book touches on this, if you want to look at that book. Erwin Lutzer, um, I almost said battle cry for a generation. That's Ron Lutzer. Uh, We will not be silenced, Erwin Lutzer. Capitalism, and here's his title, Capitalism is the Disease, Socialism is the Cure. Capitalism is the disease, and socialism is the cure to that disease. That's part of the content that is fed into our culture. Um, Let me prove my case by showing you some things. The Bible teaches a free or private enterprise system. When you look at the Proverbs, when you look at many of Jesus' parables on the kingdom that also talk about money, there's a few of those, and then passages like James 1.27 and 2 Thessalonians 3.6-13. James 1.27 and 2 Thessalonians 3.6-13. There's a quote and I won't tell you who it's from till I read it. There's a quote from the 1940s. says, The inherent vice of capitalism is the unequal sharing of blessings. That's what they say, right? That's what's sold. But the inherent virtue of socialism is the equal sharing of miseries. <laughs> that was Winston Churchill in a speech in the House of Commons in October 1945. So the content under this idea that capitalism is the... Disease, socialism is the cure. The content is harmful economic theory. If we can get good, sound economic theory, we can replace it with harmful economic theory that in, in, in and of itself is harmful and does more to prey on humanities. Look, we're sinful under a capitalistic system. We're still sinners under a socialistic system. We're still sinners. That doesn't change. But one system takes advantage of that sinful nature in a much more strategic, twisted, dark way then the other disincentivizes, in many ways, uh, that kind of behavior. So let me explain. Harmful economic theory would be part of the content. So socialism promises free college, and really you have to put quotes around the word free there, right? Nothing is free. You realize once you leave your parents' house, it takes, what, all of a week or a month at the most to realize nothing's free. Socialism promises free college, free health care, free retirement income, a guaranteed job, and a decent wage. But since the simple reality is that none of these things is actually free, nothing is, this theory is harmful because it tells you a lie and fights against reality itself. So Paul in 2 Thessalonians, and we're going to look at the passage later, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians that if someone doesn't want to work, now he's talking about poverty of choice, he's not talking about poverty of circumstance. What would be poverty of circumstance? A couple examples that the Bible would say you do take care of. Can anybody think of something in James maybe? Widows, orphans, they weren't put there, well, unless you goodbye earl them. They weren't put there by choice, they were put there by circumstance. The Bible actually does say to help that. We're talking about, and we're going to look at this passage later, 2 Thessalonians, Paul's talking about poverty of choice, not circumstance. He says, if someone does not want to work, then he should not get to eat. Want to, not 
not, okay, this something bad just happened to him. What does that require? It, provi- it requires that you provide your own food by your own labor, your own provision by your own labor. God created us to work. Another illustration, income inequality, I'm sorry, income equality under socialism would ensure that no one get left behind because everyone would make the same living wage, no matter what job you did. But Jesus advocates unequal pay and unequal distribution of wealth. Look at Matthew So if you're still in Matthew 17, look at Matthew 20. Equality of opportunity, hey, good. No biblical issues there, no problems. Equality of outcome by force, we've we've crossed the line at that point. Look at Matthew 20, 13 through 15. There's this parable of the workers in the vineyard, and there's this great, and by the way, Jesus is teaching, this is what my kingdom is like. Here's what I think about things. Okay, so here's what he says in Matthew 20, 13 through 15. But he answered one of them and said, the, the, owner of the, worker, uh, the owner of the field that the workers were working, he answered one of them and said, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? So there was, there was an agreement of a wage rate between the two of them. Take what is yours and go your way. He said, not more, but just what is yours, and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. And then here's the principle, verse 15. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? What is it assuming? It's assuming the land is his, private property rights. It's assuming the money is his to pay the workers with. Or is your eye evil because I am good? Now, the Bible does say if you can pay a worker that day, don't wait and put it off and make excuses. Oh, I'll pay you in two weeks. The Bible does speak against that taking advantage of, unfair advantage of workers. Yes. So there is some protections built in, but the money belongs to him. He says, is it not lawful for me to do uh, what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I'm good? In other words, are you glaring and looking at me that way because I'm doing good? So the last will be first and the first will be last. So a property owner can pay to the worker whatever the owner and the worker agree on. Okay? So you actually have unequal pay in principle. If you look at Matthew 25, so hang a right. If you're in Matthew 20, go to Matthew 25, look at 26 through 29. Again, parable. A parable is a truth about how God's kingdom functions and what God wants. So he's, um, each one typically has one main lesson, but you also find these neat uh, real world principles, and it surprises even some Christians, even some economic principles inside the parables. Matthew 25 And then we're going to look at 26 through 29, not read the whole parable. 26 through 29. So the master gave his workers three different sum. A talent was a sum of money. Today you could say a million dollars. One had uh, one, one had two, one had three. Or maybe it was one, three, and five. But he gave them three different amounts. And they did three different things with it. Two of them invested and grew their amounts. One of them didn't lose his amount, but he didn't grow it either. And so here's his response to that guy. His Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. Lazy. I still have your talent. No, you didn't work with it. You didn't do anything with it. You didn't invest it. You didn't grow it. You did nothing with it. You wicked and lazy servant. This is coming out of Jesus' mouth. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seeds. So you should have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, listen to this and think about equal distribution of wealth. 
Therefore, take the sum of money from him, the guy who only had one. He had less in this case. But that's not the point. The point is he didn't do anything with it. Take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. That's the opposite of what socialism would say. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But to him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. The point is not what you have and how much. The point is what you do with what you have, no matter how much. God rewards diligence. He does not reward laziness. He's he's against that. So Matthew 20 and Matthew 25, you see unequal pay, you see unequal distribution of wealth. But it's based on the character of the individual and what they do with what they have. Do they squander it? Do they not grow it? Do they sit on it and don't do anything and work? Or do they do something with it? Right? And so this is the principle that you see. In Matthew 25, the master is concerned with what his workers do with what they're given whether they use it to earn more. He's not concerned that they each have the same amount. That's what a socialistic Jesus would have done, correct? Uh, By the way, some people quote Acts 4 to support, it's the only one passage that some people try to quote, to support socialism. They say, well, the church came and sold everything they had. They shared everything in common. Yes, but that was a distinct situation where people were actually failing to put food on the table because the economic suffering of that period was so great in the Jewish persecution of Jews and non-Jews, but especially Jews who were coming to Christ. The Jewish persecution and boycotting of their businesses were causing them to not even be able to put food on the table. So yes, there was this early period, of, in, in, and that was only in Jerusalem. That was not prescribed everywhere. So there was this early period of that. But even that immediately met with problems, did it not? Why were deacons created? To solve problems that was a result of that, them doing that and sharing everything. The widows weren't getting uh, the, the I, can't, I may have this backwards, the Hellenistic widows were getting gypped and the Jewish widows were getting more in the distribution to the widows. They were not being fairly taken care of and so they came with this problem and the deacons helped solve the problem. That's one of the early things they did. So even from the very beginning, that system ran into trouble, ran into problems. And again, it wasn't prescribed uh, as a normal thing for churches moving forward. It was a limited thing for Jerusalem. Um, So he's not concerned in Matthew 25 that they each have the same amount. To prove this point even further, he takes the one talent or sum of money away from the worker who only has one. He gives it to the worker who has more than one because they weren't idle or lazy with theirs. They did something with it. They grew it had nothing to do with how much they had. So there's no equality of outcome. There is equality of reward based on what each person does with what they're given, and people work and behave differently. And they do, and they make that choice. Another illustration. Karl Marx, and it was Marx Engels, I believe, were the two guys that worked on this. Karl Marx in the Communist Manifesto teaches that private property and everything connected with this idea is the root of all evil. But God's word in direct disagreement with his principles teaches in 1 Timothy 6 that the love of money is the root of all evil. Look what he says in 1 Timothy 6, 8 through 10. So some people love to quote this verse out of context. I think 1 Timothy 6, 8 through 10 is probably quoted out of context as much as um, used in a way that God didn't mean it. Every bit as much as the separation of church and state is used by the far left in ways that Thomas Jefferson, who penned that phrase, who as president of the United States started Christian church services and held them inside the U.S. Capitol, (laughs) 
they misuse that phrase. Well, you can never say anything Christian or religious at all if you serve in government. You have to separation of church and state. You, you have no clue what he meant when he actually ushered that phrase. All he meant was the government cannot tell you. He was writing to a Bap- Danbury Baptist Association. He was writing to this group of Baptists that were worried about this new government that was forming. What are they going to make us do? And he told them, don't worry. They're, they're going to let you worship how, in freedom. You don't have to become an Anglican because that was the concern. Anglican was more concerned with, connected with like the state church idea. Are they going to make us become Anglican? You know, we're Baptists. We were persecuted in England for being Baptists. No, they won't. There's a separation of church and state. He never meant that you, as a Christian, cannot serve in government and influence government and pray. Mike Johnson, our current Speaker of the House, is getting ripped over that misunderstanding of that phrase. So there's this 1 Timothy 6. This is every bit as misused as that. People say, Money is the root of all evil. Have you ever heard that? Money is the root of all evil. Not what the Bible says. Look, 1 Timothy 6. If anybody says that, you just go, oh, well, you know, I, I used to think that too, but let's look at where that comes from. You can do it with the Thomas Jefferson quote too. Let's look at where that comes from and what he meant by that. Okay, 1 Timothy 6, 8 through 10 says, And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation and a snare. So if that's all you're chasing, that ain't good. And into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. I don't know why you need to say destruction twice, but he basically just did. It's bad. But look what he says, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness. So it's the greediness, that's the issue and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. Money itself is not evil, but when your emotions are attached to your money, it can create all kinds of evil. And Paul actually makes up a word here when he says the love of money, philarguria. Arguria is the Greek word for money. Philia is the Greek word, one of three, used in the Bible for love. It's a, it's just a, it can be a friendship. It doesn't have to be romantic, but it can be a friendship. It's an emotional love, an emotional attachment. That's philia, you know, where we get our word Philadelphia. Philia is an emotional attachment, okay? So what did Paul just say? Your emotions are connected to your money. Your money's up, I'm good. Your money's down, oh man, the world's ending. You don't attach your emotions to your money. Who do you attach your emotions to? Your God. He's unmoving. He never, your emotions are steady now. They're attached to what he says, what he thinks about me, not my money. That's what Paul just said. But what it, how do they misuse that quote? Money's the root of all evil. No, Paul said the love, when your emotions are attached to your money, it causes greediness. That's the root of all kinds of evil. That is what Paul says. Money is a magnifying glass. It will magnify who you already are. If you're a jerk and you have a little bit of money and you somehow get a lot of money, you're going to be a royal jerk times, you know, to the 10th degree. If you're kind-hearted and you give and you love people and you... And, and you work hard over a period of time and build some wealth and you earn a lot of money or whatever, you come into money, you don't magically just flip a switch and go, I don't think I'm going to be nice to people anymore. No, it, it, it magnifies your character. Now, some people get it too quickly and their character wasn't developed to be able to handle that much that fast, so that can be true as well. Uh, but it's a magnifying glass. It makes you more of who you already are. It magnifies your character. And it'll show you real quickly whether your character was on point or whether it was off. We could go on and we could talk about the enemy's content. 
under the government sphere of how rights come from the government and not from God, this content, this teaching that says that, made perfectly visible at Roe versus Wade where the government decided that it, not God, it could give the right to choose to the mother while, den- while denying the right to life to the unborn child. So in Roe v. Wade, which was overturned, but, in, in that, but don't misunderstand, that didn't do away with all abortion. Most of you probably know that by now. It just kicked the issue back to the states and, let, and, and took it off the Fed level. Uh, bicameralism is the word for this idea of there's the federal level and the state level, and they each have different things. They cooperate, but they have different things to do. All it did under bicameralism was kick the issue back to the states. It was a good thing, don't misunderstand me, but it didn't, okay, all abortion is eradicated. The Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. No, that's not what happened. It just kicked the issue back to the states. But during Roe v. Wade, that is where the... um, the Supreme Court and the government said, rights come from us, not God. So we get to tell the mother, yep, right to choose, and the baby, right to life. No, you don't have that, because we say you don't have that. We could talk about climate change. We could talk about Sweden experimenting with socialism and learning that it doesn't work, and so they changed their tune after learning pretty quickly. Or Venezuela, where Hugo Chavez promised wealth equality. Here's a great example for you, wealth equality and ended his career in 2013, by his death, with a net worth of $4.2 billion, with a B, while his people starve and fight and rob for basic necessities like food. Does that sound like equal distribution of wealth? There's distribution of wealth, but the vast majority of that wealth, which, which dwindles quickly under any socialistic system, but whatever wealth is left rises to the top. And as always, it's in the hands of one person or a family or a group of oligarchy. If you've ever watched The Hunger Games, that last district, that's actually not real. It's realistic, but it's unrealistic in that it wouldn't have been spread over that many people in that last district. It would have been way fewer people than that. That's typically the way it plays out. It's either one commander or his family or a small group, like in Russia, an oligarchy system. It's a relatively small group of people compared to the population. That's the way it plays out. Um, So we could talk about that. We could talk about the COVID-19 pandemic here in America and how our own government gave people money to sit on their rear ends and produce nothing and then wonder why inflation crept up so quickly afterward. You cannot, I mean, this is an economic principle that is reality. You cannot push fiat money. Fiat means there's nothing inherently backing it. It is worth it because we say it's worth it. You cannot print and push fiat money into the economy with nothing behind it. Essentially the same thing as the older socialistic approach of simply printing more. Like we saw that happen in Germany, if you uh, remember in the, uh, I can't remember the decade. Was it the 30s or the 40s? 30s. Um, And not have that create inflation by making the value of that currency go down. But in the moment, to many people, even those who call themselves conservative, this socialistic economic suicidal behavior seemed like a good idea. And as if once wasn't enough, let's do it again and let's do it again. Harmful economic theory is one of the enemies instead of the people on the local level gathering and taking care of the needs of their own as needed on a local level. No, let's just send and create free money out of nothing and then wonder why inflation's horrible. Harmful economic theory is one of the enemy's favorite tools in this culture Because with it, he can scoff at biblical principles. With it, he can weaken the nation to the point of, if this behavior is left unchecked, murderous, chaotic starvation. Don't take my word for it. Go open a history book. 
Every time, this is where this ends. Please don't make the North Korea great example. Uh, the, there's three leaders. We're on the third leader of North Korea right now. And it's, it's, was it Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, and now we're Kim, Kim Il... I get all their names mixed up. Kim Il-sung is the guy. Right. Kim Jong-un, thank you. Kim Jong-un. Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, and Kim Jong-un is now in, in power. None of those guys went hungry a day in their life. Under the first guy, Russia was still massively supplementing their food supply, and that's the only reason it looked like they were doing well, and it did for a while. When the USSR, when the Berlin Wall fell, when the USSR collapsed, uh, either all or most of their food surpluses, um, not surplus is not the word, they didn't have a surplus, uh, their food supply, yeah, somebody help me here, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, subsidies. Their food subsidies coming from these other nations trickled to a stop. That's when millions in North Korea starved to death. I mean, I, we don't even know what the number is. We don't know what the number is. It's probably in the millions. Um, now they've maybe, I don't, you can't use the word recovered. Slightly, maybe, but it's, it's, it's not much, much better. It's still pretty bleak. This is the way this, this plays out. Murderous, chaotic starvation. Please don't make the tragic mistake of thinking that God does not care about economics. I think a lot of Christians fall into this trap. They just say, well, just preach the gospel. And that is true. That's what we do. And that is our main call. But God doesn't care about economics. That's nonsense. And while the human condition is inherently aimed towards sin, and so human sin will damage either system, capitalism or socialism, yes, socialism by its very nature is more flawed and many of its principles unbiblical. Capitalism is not perfect, but it's the best option on the table. And it lines up much more closely with biblical principles. And I don't have time to cover them, but I've got in my notes, if you want to come up and look at them later, several passages that clearly teach a free market system and some of these ideas. They're in there. They're in there. You've just got to look and find them. Uh, number three, third sphere, the church. So we've looked at the family. We've looked at the government. Now let's look at the church. Just a couple of things I want to talk about here. Number one, weaken the local church from inside. So the church being the third sphere. Some of the content of the enemy wants to weaken the local church from the inside. And then the second thing, and we'll talk about that a little bit. And then the second thing is pressure the local church from the outside. Weaken the local church from inside. Pressure the local church from outside. And if, and if Satan can do both at the same time through the culture, hey, even better. So weaken the local church from the inside. One of the content under this category would be false teaching. That's basically how the enemy's often going to do that, false teaching. False teaching, by the way, false teaching inside the church begins in the seminary. That's where it begins. The conservative resurgence that took the Southern, I know we're not technically in the Southern Baptist Convention, but the conservative resurgence that took it back to believing the Bible is fully God's word, they, they quickly learned they had to start with the seminary and take the seminaries back. If the professors are teaching their students that Genesis is just fable, and half of it didn't even really happen, but it just teaches a spiritual lesson. But it's not true historically at all. If, if, and that was happening, by the way. If that continues, we're going to have a, a generation of preachers that don't even know the truth or, or trust this word and end up walking away from it. So they realize we've got to, and it was an ugly fight. I'm not going to say that good things were done on, on either side. It was an ugly fight, uh, but it needed to be fought. And um, they cleaned the seminaries up got the seminaries back to believing God's word. Did they knee-jerk reaction against statements of anyone who even 
reeked at all of that they had any of these ideas? Did they over? Yeah, maybe sometimes with a few professors. But by and large, it had to be fought. They took the seminaries back. Um, so here's an illustration of false teaching. Critical race theory focuses on groups to the detriment of individuals. Critical race theory is one illustration. And what it does is it focuses on groups to the detriment of individuals. But Paul, in 2 Corinthians 12, says that both the group, in this case the church, and the individual are both important to God. It's both. It's not just one or the other. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'll show you what I mean. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 through 28. So if you're in 1 Timothy, hang a left. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 through 28. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26 through 28. Paul's talking about the church as the group in this context, but he's talking about a group and an individual in the church. 26 of 1 Corinthians 12. If one member, he's talking about the church, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members should rejoice with it. Now, you are the body of Christ. That's his corporate group statement. You're the body of Christ. Consider one another. He's going to say that often, right? Love one another. During the marriage, uh, during, not the marriage, the Lord's Supper feast, wait on one another. Don't eat all the food before the people who have to work longer hours get and show up and then the food's all gone. That was a problem in the Corinthian church, so Paul corrects that. So he says, consider yourself part of a group. That's true. If we don't do that, that's, especially as the church, that's a bad idea. But look at what Paul says. It, verse 27 breaks it, breaks it open all by itself. These two things. Now, you are the body of Christ, number one. That protects us from individualism. We see the importance of the group. And members individually. Do you see that? That protects us from communism. This verse sets crucial boundaries for our ethics and behavior inside the church. Paul says, look, the individual is important and the group is important, not just one or the other. But a lot of times critical race theory and other false teachings will make you pick one or the other. And typically, the, the, modern, uh, the modern tactic with the enemy has lately been more group-oriented. You're part of this group or that group. You can't change groups, and you're stuck with it. You know, if your skin color is this color, you're in that group, and, and you can't associate with people. And it's nonsense. It's nonsense. The church considers the group. It also considers the individual. There's a quote from Erwin Lutzer in We Will Not Be Silenced, page 84 and 85, and um, very interesting. Let me read it for you real quickly. Here's what it says. I love it. Erwin Lutzer, we will not be silenced. 84 and 85, here's what he says. In the world of political correctness, arguments are resolved by social force and shaming, not by discussion, does this sound familiar? Not by discussion, evaluating evidence, or civility, or debate for that matter. This kind of hysteria is hardly conducive to racial reconciliation. Social justice theories have also infiltrated some churches, especially those of a liberal bent that say they are inclusive, usually meaning that they accept same-sex marriage and the like. Now, we want to love and reach same-sex people with the truth, but if we remove the truth of, of uh, how God designed a man to be with a woman, that's not loving. Um, that's not his quote, that's me. So he says, I agree with Neil Shenvey, who is distressed about the acceptance of CRT, critical race theory, even in some evangelical churches. Some Christians apparently do not understand that these theories are antithetical to Christianity on virtually every point. CRT teaches that a person's identity cannot be separated from the group to which they belong. 
If you're born white, you're labeled an oppressor, regardless of your character or personal attitude. My grandpa was a sharecropper and wore his sister's dresses until he was about five years old. They didn't have two pennies to rub together, right? But, oh, he's privileged because of the color of his skin. I mean, come on. It's ridiculous. If you're born white, you're labeled an oppressor, regardless of your character or personal attitude. Individuality is lost within the group you belong to. And if you are born white and you choose to defend yourself against the charge of racism, this only proves that indeed you are a racist. Wealthy black Americans are not considered persons of privilege, but a white person born... By the way, when we've cleaned up our... We're in an attempt of these, some of these groups to clean up and white... and um, Not whitewash, that's the wrong word. Um, to clean and change our history. Unfortunately, they've removed a lot of black history. Black people are so instrumental in our found. If you go back to Massachusetts, start at Plymouth and look at the development of Massachusetts. That state is the only state to have never had slavery. It's always illegal. Early on, they did the death penalty for it. They quote quoting Exodus. Um, early on, there were multiple black leaders, mayors in government. They elected them multiple times. I mean, they just couldn't, they wanted them in, in power. Um, is Massachusetts, the state legacy from them is just, it's, from the beginning is incredible. Uh, sorry, I'm getting off. Um, wealthy black Americans are not considered persons of privilege, but a white person born into abject poverty is considered a person of privilege. There's no room for individuality, kindness, forgiveness, or meaningful reconciliation. How can we reconcile when this is the tactic, right? Even more importantly, in the purely secular application of critical race theory, redemption is only viewed as separating a group from its oppressors. And sometimes if we're not too careful, right, these ideas go that far. Not as the need to be freed from sin by the gospel of God's saving grace. Salvation in the radical view of CRT is to gain power over your oppressors and until the oppressors triumph, until the oppressed triumph over their oppressors, the conflict must continue. Pure marks. And so do you hear the mentality with critical race theory or CRT? You heard it, right? Now, should we be sensitive to the conscience of our siblings in Christ who are from a different social or ethnic background or country? Yes, absolutely. If they've had experiences of prejudice, uh, racism, and things like that, we need to have an open ear. We need to listen to them. But CRT is not the answer we need for building better connections with our brothers and sisters in Christ from different ethnicities. CRT will actually damage the ability to do that. Can't do it. Only the gospel can bring true unity between two people. That's the only thing that has the power to do it. No government program will ever be able to do it. No human good intention will ever do it. Only the gospel. Another illustration. Um, Let me read this to you, and then I'll wrap us up uh, here in just a second. I know I'm going long. Another illustration. Evangelism is important, so hear me say that. It's one of the main things we're called to do. But I love how he says this. Um, It's not the only thing God calls us to do. In his book, Eric Metaxas, Letter to the American Church, page 75 and 76, I just want to read to you just a little bit of it. The title of the chapter sounds weird until you understand what he's saying. He calls it the idol of evangelism. And he doesn't mean just evangelism. He means we're only going to do evangelism. We don't do anything else that God tells us to do, just evangelism. Sometimes if we're not careful, we make an idol of that. He says the idol of evangelism. Listen, if we elevate any good idea too far, we distort that idea and everything along with it. So just as one might say that faith is everything and and thereby forget that faith must be lived out with our whole being and manifested in how we behave, 
one might say that the most important thing in the world is that someone come to salvation. Obviously, that's crucial, right? But after all, if the infinity of eternity is at stake, nothing can even begin to compare with that level of gravity, of importance. And so we, and so we go about calculating how to do this one thing and this alone. Not only is this the most important thing imaginable, but we encourage ourselves further with the idea that when someone comes to faith, their behavior and their views on every subject, that they will eventually come into line with God's will. They will instantly come to hold a biblical view of sexuality and of the infinite value of all life and everything else that's biblical. It's inevitable. Of course, it's not quite that simple. (laughs) True. God expects us and often calls us to do many things at once. Discipleship is not the same thing as evangelism, but if we think that without attending to the serious work of discipleship, we can ever be anything like what God intends for his church, we are mistaken. Do you see what he's saying? It's not just evangelism, it's also discipleship. Nor does the Bible present us with a picture of God's people doing nothing but leading others to salvation. True? Look at the hall of faith. Half those people served in government. Sometimes God enjoins his people to build walls or to fight battles. Sometimes he has us say difficult things to people who do not receive those difficult things, but instead walk away forever. Nonetheless, there are some who have this fixed idea that evangelism is the most important and really the only thing worth doing. After all, what's the point in doing anything at all if one more soul ends up in hell for eternity? But if we are to take the Bible as a whole we see that this view is a huge misunderstanding of what God expects of us. And as with any such misunderstandings, it leads to grave errors, serious errors, and problems, and often to tragedy. So you see his point when he says evangelism can become an idol. He's not saying in and of itself. He's saying, I only think that God is, the only thing the Bible tells me as a Christian to do is that, and nothing else. But it has all these other things to say. It has to do with how I'm going to treat someone who works for me, it has to do with how I'm going to treat who I work for. How, I, how do I work for him or her? As unto God. I mean, it, it, tells, it governs that. It tells me what I'm supposed to do in personal relationships. It tells you what to do in your marriage. It tells you how to be salt and light. I mean, it tells you all these different things. Evangelism is crucial. But sometimes, if we're not careful, it's made an idol out of. So our calling from God to be salt and light in a culture includes the things we're covering in this series, not just evangelism. And then the second thing is pressure from the local church from outside. Pressure of the local church from outside. Uh, Part of the pressure to the local church from the outside is, and will probably continue to be many of the things we've mentioned so far in this series. But let's take a a look at a couple ones that we haven't covered yet, and then we'll hit application and wrap up. Uh, Number one is Islam. Number two is environmentalism. I'm just grabbing two. Okay, there's a lot of content out there. Maybe part of your homework can be to go find more of the content and identify it and correct it with scripture. One of the contents is Islam. While there are Muslims who want to live under the American system of government and not implement Sharia law, which is the Islamic legal structure, if you didn't know what that is, which is a military, political, legal, and even a linguistic Arabic code, there are many Muslims who do want to change our entire system to implement Sharia law. And please don't be fooled. Sharia does not work with our Constitution, federal or state. It is at odds with it. The CAIR is a great illustration. Council on the American-Islamic Relations, CAIR. The co-founder of CARE said, CAIR said, quote, 
Islam is not in America to be equal with any other faith, but to become dominant. The Quran should be the highest authority in America, and Islam the only accepted religion on earth. End quote. Another illustration of this is the Muslim Brotherhood, which has a very similar goal in America, not to integrate and tolerate other religions, but to dominate and overcome all, all other religions. Again, not every Muslim will behave or think this way, but this is there in, in the thread. The misbehavior is of Islam, in case you didn't know this, is the very reason that our United States Marines branch of the military, although they're under the Navy, but they won't admit that, uh, exist in the first place. It's why the Marines exist. And in those early days, trying to negotiate with the Muslim pirates in northern Africa, the man we sent to negotiate with their leader returned home frustrated and shocked. He bought many copies of the Quran, brought many copies of the Quran with him, and he gave them to some of his friends because he thought they needed to read it to understand that there was a religious system out there that inherently encouraged lies, deception, theft, enslavement, and even death for any other religion. That's what these pirates were doing. They were stealing our ships, uh, trying to trade. And any other religion, and their God allows and encourages this behavior. This religion was Islam, and this man was Thomas Jefferson. When he came back from trying to negotiate with that guy, he said, I, you, can't, you can't negotiate with him. I mean, he's nuts. And his God tells him it's okay. If we're unwilling to share the gospel with Muslims to lead them to true salvation in Jesus Christ, then unless the government restrains this misbehavior, we will all in the future be dead, moved away, or be speaking Arabic. Another type of content example would be environmentalism. So I think God's bringing some of them here for us to witness to them. You know, And we also do. We support our missionary to Pakistan, who's a native there, who goes and is leading so many people to Christ. You have to be careful with someone Muslim on their birth certificate. They can't change. You can change from Christian to Muslim on your birth certificate, but you cannot change it the other way. In Pakistan, uh, it's illegal. It's a death penalty to do so. So you have to be careful how you witness to someone who has Muslim on their birth certificate. They openly share with Christians, though, and then they also work with uh, non-Christians. Um, the other content's environmentalism. I'm not referring to the belief that we should be good managers of this creation. We should. That God has given to us to manage for him. Or that we should always be studying his creation to better understand the ecology and therefore be better equipped to manage it in the long term. I'm referencing the belief that takes God's authority structure we mentioned previously where God put humankind in authority over plants and the rest of creation, remember that, in the garden, and turns it on its head by putting nature in authority over us. The idea that you should never cut a tree down, that kind of a thing. Neil Eaton, pastor at New Hope, Church, uh, sorry, Neil Eaton, pastor at New Hope Chapel near Plymouth, Massachusetts, remember I mentioned Plymouth, where the pilgrims first landed, is meeting resistance to building at all in the area to put a church campus there. Although they got a unanimous vote from the zoning board in this city to build their church, they're receiving resistance from email and social media and articles that they need to, quote, F themselves, but the actual word, and to stop destroying trees and altering the land as if God did not give us the authority to manage his land for him. You can watch the church's short documentary if you want to. I recommend you check it out. Uh, it's a very short documentary they have for free on americashometownrevival.com, or a recap of it, americashometownrevival.com, and that's Pastor Neil Eaton. <clears throat> it's ironic that 
where some of the Christian principles began in this nation at Plymouth. Remember I said Jamestown is a legacy of slavery. Plymouth is a legacy of liberty and actual biblical principles, not just saying we're Christian and then not acting like it, which Jamestown to a large degree did. Plymouth did not. Christian, Plymouth said we're Christian, we're going to act like it. You will not own people. That's never okay, never has been in the state of Massachusetts. So check that out. That's Neil Eaton, America's Hometown Revival. But it's ironic that in Plymouth, where much of this started, it's now, culturally, it's now become, you know, very, very dark in many ways. But, hey, God's not done with Plymouth. He has his people there. God's not done with, don't give up on D.C. God's not done with D.C. My sister-in-law runs the HR for the House of Representatives side. So she's doing the, the behind-the-scenes type stuff. Um, the, God is still sending Christians to D.C. to serve in the federal government, House and Senate, both chambers, who are strong believers. Mike Johnson's one of them from Louisiana. Who are strong believe how he got to be House Speaker is just a miracle story in and of itself. Um, who are strong believers and who God is calling them to go serve in D.C. God said, hey, you, D.C., that's my calling for you. Go be salt and light and serve in government. So God, God's not done. Don't, don't wring your hands and say it's all over. You ever watch the old cartoon Chicken Little? The old Disney cartoon? There's a newer one. That's blasphemy. The old Disney cartoon with the fox's voice where he goes, it's a beast of the sky, you know, from across the thing. The sky is not falling. God has not given up. God still has his people there. So um, application in your notes. Application. It's simply this. We are ambassadors for Jesus Christ on this earth. That's it. As God's ambassadors and as his managers, we need to represent his character faithfully inside a nation and a culture that has lost its way. We need to show grace and respect to everyone who differs from us, but we can't do that without courageously sharing the truth of Jesus. I mean, because that's the solution. That's the fix. That's the hope for their life. And like I said last week, we're the only ones who have the truth. And so how are they going to hear it except from us? So homework in your notes, the last section, homework. This week, I want you to consider these three spheres of life, family, government, and church, and look into what instruction, not comes out of my mouth, the Bible. The Bible gives you for how to respond to it, or what to do about it, or how to influence it with God's ideas about living. Uh, Questions or thoughts, I'll pray us out. Anybody have anything? And then take some of these ideas you might find for the homework. Take some of these ideas, bring them back next week. Um, We'll probably have time at the end to do some Q&A, and you might share some stuff that I didn't even have in my notes. I mean, you might chime in with things too. So um, come back if you want to. Be prepared to do that next week. Any questions as I wrap us up, pray us out or comments or thoughts a verse I referenced okay oh good okay Um, yes okay so on working and getting paid I mentioned a couple of passages so one of these will definitely be one of the ones that you were talking about. So one is Matthew 20 and 25, but then I think the one you might be talking about is 2 Thessalonians. Oh, and I didn't, did I? You have a good, you're taking, you get 100 salvation points right there. 
Yes, let me, let me grab that for you. I didn't even put that in my notes. I put in my notes that I was going to say it, and I didn't. Hang on one second. Um, so here it is. It's, yes, thank you. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 13. And really, I was talking about verse 10. If anyone will not work, is not willing to, is what that phrase means. For even when we were among you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. So I recapped it, but no, I didn't read it. You're right. And he's, he's addressing a, an attitude of laziness, which you see back in, um, in 2 Thessalonians, but you see the root of it all the way back in Acts and in the, in the story of those locations too. Yeah, anybody else? You're paying attention, sharp. I like it. Anybody else? Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you for tonight. Um, thank you for the richness of your word again and just all that it tells us. It, it's so, oh, wow. It's one of the things your word says that you get to do through us, through the church, on display to the enemy's kingdom is to show your multifaceted. Um, the word means multicolored, multivariety, um, various. Your multifaceted, amazing wisdom that you're right, our ideas are not. Your ideas are right. We're not. You're wise. Without your wisdom, we're fools. Um, and you're using us to put on display to the enemy's kingdom that fact that you did create everything perfectly. You are the wise one, and your wisdom is incredible. So just um, I pray that we would absorb that wisdom and, and pull these principles into our lives and live them out faithfully and courageously in a culture that desperately needs it. We pray that you would bring us back next week up so that we can wrap up this series and hopefully maybe even toward the end uh, talk a little bit about what uh, people have learned uh, through this series. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.